Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do, and what's more on our show, you get to have your say. You can leave us a message on 224-218-9-BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. You get to sound off on our Chalk Talk segment, you get to show off by taking our opera pop quiz, and you get to piss people off by handing out letter grades to review a performance you've seen in our Monday evening quarterback segment. You can tweet us at OperaVoxScore. Well, a new piece opened last week at L.A. Opera called Anatomy Theater. It's set in the 1700s. It dissects, literally, the body and mind of a murderer. We examine the gross-out factor of this opera. Plus, TKO is back. This time, our opera singer death match pits Luciano Pavarotti against Yussi Björling. Can the Swedish Caruso dethrone the king of the high sea? We'll put the two of the greatest champions in the ring and let them duke it out in Verdi's Rigoletto. There will be blood as Tobias Wright and Mathen Black take sides. Oliver Camacho is the judge. And I've got all your opera headlines while Giovanna Jacques checks in from the Teatro Massimo in Sicily. Let's do this. We're live. Kickoff is next on Opera Box School. All right, boys. Man, full house today. I don't know where Giovanna is, uh, other than in Italy, of course. It's a total sausage party over it here. It really yeah. is. It really is. Oliver, <laughs> How do they say sausage in Italy? Macho. Giovanna? Uh, salsiccia, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> this is a festa di salsiccia. What's going on, Oliver? Senza Giovanni. I haven't seen you for a while in person. Um, Giovanna. Giovanna Jacques. Um, hello. It's nice to be back in the studio. We are recording at 11 a.m., this Monday. So we're actually not live. If you're listening to this live, you have some amazing power about time travel. And across from me in the studio is Tobias. Still here, and I still need someone to shave my back this week. All right. Well, then I'll look over to Mappin. Give me a razor, bro. We can make some stuff happen. Okay. I guess that's why we brought you back. Yeah. 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 Speaking of Mathen shaving Toby's back, um, for those of you who don't know, there is a podcast, which we've plugged a couple times, called Doing the Work. And it's Mathen's podcast. And uh, the last, oh, I guess the second to last guest, two, two episodes ago, was Toby Wright. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I was surprised to, that he was chosen as a guest. I mean, his career isn't that extensive. That no, I'm just, I'm just you kidding. Don't think he we all just, so I know you guys can't see this, but we all just looked at Oliver like, "Wow, you dick." <laughs> no, Oliver, you no, know this. No, what I was gonna say, I'm just kidding. What I was gonna say is that it was such a good conversation. We had a and, lot of fun doing it. And there was a real, there was an authentic moment there when you guys were talking about the struggle of just having a job and like going to work and punching some time card and you know and trying to make music at the same time and i was listening to that and thinking that when i turned 30 which was a couple of years ago um, that I was going to get out. I was really going to make it a promise to myself to get out of the restaurant business, come hell or high water and just go, you know, to the deep end and be just a musician. And um I didn't do it and I stayed for 10 more years and I felt 
that I wanted the young version of myself to listen to that podcast. Oh, Oliver, uh, so that's I, an amazing compliment. Yeah, so you kids listening to Doing the Work right now, uh, listen to yourself. Listen to your instincts and do what you think is best for yourself. Money is important. I get it. you got to pay the bills. But if you can make it work, <laughs> if you mm-hmm. can do the work and get out, please do it because you don't want to live with regret. Oliver, you know? maybe you're the one that we should be dissecting instead <laughs> of this uh, 18th century woman of ill repute. The show is called Anatomy Theater. It's been done at L.A. Opera. It's sold out. It's uh, apparently moving to New York shortly. Uh, you can go to our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, to look at uh, the link from L.A. Opera. Also, there's some um, bit on NPR about the show as well. Listen to some clips of the music. But the piece essentially looks at this prostitute from the 1700s who murdered her children, was hanged, and then her own body dissected by scientists to try and figure out what the root of these sorts of evils were. Uh, Looking at the photos of the show, there's some crazy projections. There's some naked breasts. (laughs) Most of us are interested in that, I guess. Uh, But if you squeeze them together, it looks like a butt. Okay, yes. And then I'm sort of like, oh, that's that's all right. (laughs) So it, it makes me think of other shows that have sort of like a gross out factor obviously this piece I think is very connected to Sweeney Todd Mm -hmm. I think uh, if you haven't seen a show of Sweeney Todd conceptualized where like it's set in an operating room and we're dissecting Sweeney Todd's brain if you haven't seen that thing that then you haven't seen enough productions of Sweeney Todd because that's a very typical sort of even night. when anybody gets their neck cut I'm always like sympathetically holding my neck because I, I just hate the idea of somebody dragging something sharp across my yeah. neck I don't know about you guys but <laughs> no spoilers for Game of Thrones here so don't be scared about yeah. that yeah. Um, no this actually seems very very interesting we as a culture have this fascination with the Victorian era, with gore, and it's nice to see that that visceral reaction to the imagery be used to good uh, to good effect in musical theater. Tobias, what's your take? Well, I mean, the pictures are fun. Uh, if are we going to post a link you bet. to the article? So we'll post this on the website, and we'll let you guys go check it out too. Uh, what's interesting is, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't at all offended by any of it. Um, I didn't think it went too far. And then when you listen to the interview or read the transcript that's on the link, I mean, I think they paint a good picture of their, they very much had reasons for every reason or for everything that they did uh, with the gore. And we kind of do have that fascination with that. Well, I'll, I, there's so many angles I wanted to talk about this article from, but we'll begin with the gore factor. Um, it's not new in opera. I mean, you think no. about Wazalame, you know, 100 years ago. And, you know, Salome kissing the head of Yochanan or John the Baptist. And uh, there are so many great productions of that and pictures. You can just look uh, of that, of some soprano holding some decapitated head. And it's not always... By its hair. Yeah, and it's not always kissing the mouth. It's sometimes the mouth is kissing other parts, like Mm -hmm. type of thing. So we've seen gore. But what it made me think of is that we are now in this era where people are so desensitized to gore and you have to make gore more gory to gross people out. I mean, there's a show on Showtime called The Nick, uh, which is about this kind of same era of like the opera, the hospitals back With in the... Clive Owen, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And my brother said it was so good and I trust him, so I watched an episode. I could not get through the episode. It was so 
much blood and really? guts and like you know scalpels going into flesh and organs still pounding and stuff like that and they show it and every episode is just full of this and you have to just accept it and the first season of Game of Thrones I almost didn't get through because I was just mortified at how much violence was in it and to this day and spoiler alert but no do not no do no no, that. no not no but for season four still don't do it okay. bro spoiler alert yeah. slap <laughs> season four episode nine something terrible terrible happens that I still can't get that image out of my head. I don't want, but, I've never watched Game of Thrones, so yeah. give me all the spoilers. No, oh, God, just, come on. What's funny just, about uh, doing blood on stage is that it's actually very tricky to mm-hmm. get like the right consistency of the blood, and if you're in a props department, you will obsess about this sort of thing, is like, the secret apparently is not to use corn syrup with mm. red food dye, which is what all the community theaters do, but it's actually to use um, like Hershey's chocolate syrup, which gives it, first of all, it's much easier to wash, and it gives it actually a darker color because blood plus it really tastes so much red. better it's really, yeah. and it's completely edible but does it read as red pack uh, that was really yeah. interesting and like exploded it was when we had Grapes of Wrath at Northwestern and there was just blood all over the stage on me on the other, it, and it looked great like a gunshot or yeah. The, okay. yeah at the end of the was it a gunshot I don't even remember no it was a he got hit with a bat that's what it was nice or something huh. I don't know. I've done a lot of drugs and Math stuff. Since Walking that, Dead know. spoilers. No. Um, well, you know, the real secret to all of this is that the um, the three worst students from every vocal jury actually give given up to the props department. You bleed them dry and just use that. It works great. <laughs> <laughs> but blood on I've never believed blood on stage. I've never seen it in an opera where it looked good. It's always like Lucia de Lammermoor. And the dress is, and the dress. Yeah, yeah. And like yeah. the soprano is holding has blood on her hands, but she doesn't show it to the audience. Then she like touches her nightgown and smears it and it never looks good. Maybe they're using corn syrup. Gotta switch to chocolate sauce. But does chocolate sauce read as red? Well, I think it does have to be supplemented with some sort of dye, mm. but ultimately you're going to be able to clean it up a lot easier. Okay. And Mr. Bias says it tastes delicious. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting, though? We talk about the blood not looking real, and then in this in the interviews... Uh, Peabody Southwell talks about being poked and prodded by her colleagues. And, yeah, and thought, she's naked. And she's naked. And yeah. I thought about that. Like, how uncomfortable for her as, a, as an artist. I don't know. Would, would you guys ever be naked on stage? <laughs> One. I think we've talked about this before. At least three times on this podcast. <laughs> for anybody listening still, I'm always willing to be naked in your productions. Just let me know. Or you're naked right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but being so being naked or partially clothed is one thing as a performer. But then to also invite your colleagues to repeatedly uh, physically engage you, I think that's a whole other uh, dimension as a performer. So the whole thing that we're looking at finding here is ways that are extra musical to get to a vulnerability for an audience. Whether it's gore, whether it's nudity, what we're looking for is something that breaks down an audience's defenses and allows you to get to an open place where you can take in the material and have a communal artistic experience. I would wonder if 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, like you were saying, Oliver, if we had to push this far to get people to this point. We we know that well if we're if we're living in the conceit that there is no right or wrong in art only depictions of life that allow us to communally experience something together then i'm all about this stuff but there's always the question of taste and efficacy well it's also hard to put it into context a historical context because mm-hmm. we're right now and it's like when right of spring debuted and there was riots you know yeah. stuff like that 
And now we don't view it, you know, as controversial hardly at all, other than the fact that we knew that it was. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what history says about this moment in theater and in opera especially. Yeah, as, as opera grows up, it needs to have more realism. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a common musical language anymore, and you can't expect the audience to go in and to hear, you know, a cantilena and know, okay, this is a, a, a plaint, you know. Or a cabalette and say, oh, this is an exciting moment. You know, people don't get that automatically. So you have to do stuff on stage that helps them understand the music. And um, and I think just like we were talking, like I was talking about earlier, like with like the Nick and with Game of Thrones and all these things, like people need to feel like there's something going on here that is making this more interesting than something you could see on CBS. You mm -hmm. know. And so they're trying to draw people into the theater by saying Peabody Southwell's vagina is going to be on display for you. <laughs> Covered in blood. Yeah. Before we leave this topic, I just, I just want to say this. The reason why I actually wanted to talk about this article is because how amazing is it that NPR, which granted I probably live in an echo chamber of media, but how NPR is doing a story about a chamber opera uh, at L.A. that is not, you know, it's not the Met, it's not Yannick Nzegan, it's it's something small and bizarro, and it made it into an, onto a national stage. And um, uh, this gives me hope that there's an interest uh -huh. in this story. So. I was surprised by that when you sent me the link, Oliver, that it was on NPR, and I think actually they do deserve a lot of credit for mm -hmm. some, I don't know how this got onto their radar if the Anatomy Theater People's Press Department pushed it, or yeah. L.A. Opera's Press Department What about, it, but... uh... In the penal colony, why didn't they cover that? The, hey, you know, the Tribune did, and yeah. so yeah. there people are starting to pay attention to smaller opera with Loft Opera in New York, mm. Chicago French Opera here, and what's happening with NPR yeah. picking up this story. Well, and you know, maybe if you gave us the deed, you'd be an NPR. Oh, Oliver, <laughs> Oliver, did you did you <laughs> yeah, read? There was an article. Maybe had you been naked. In yeah. the I know, right? Colony. There was an article a few months ago that was making the rounds about Renee Fleming talking about the state of opera in in the world. Actually, I think you may have posted this on Facebook, which is where I read it, where she's talking about how the next few hundred years of opera will probably be in the hands of smaller opera companies who aren't stuck by the constraints of an opera house like the Lyric, a 3,000-seat house, a 4,000-seat house, where the real magic is going to be happening in black box theaters, in multimedia purposed spaces. I think that's kind of cool, and it's nice to see people like the Tribune and NPR picking up on that. Yeah, it is. But we've been talking about it since day one. Bam! Opera we, box score. We've been, ta we've been talking about it for day one here, but you know, I was thinking about it earlier when you were just kind of describing uh, the theatrical process of what we see, and it's like a lot of those big houses, they're stuck performing these quote-unquote standard reps, the top 10, the top 20 operas, and with that, you know, they don't... Even new productions, and we'll talk actually a little bit later about Rigoletto, and there's been a bunch of different productions of that, they don't really change much. Um, they may change location like that is the Las Vegas production from 2013 at the mm. Met but even still it doesn't change what we're seeing as audience members it doesn't give us any more reality and so you're kind of stuck by doing the standard rep some of these houses you're kind of stuck in a certain imaginary place that you can't really expand from and when you're doing stuff like this with the David Lang piece it's a new script what do we know about David Lang? Well, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer. We know that. And I know that his music, having performed some of it when I was a student at Northwestern, it's sparse. Often the text is extremely carefully um, uh, put to the music. And, I mean, it's a, I would say some of his music, it's an acquired taste. You're not going to listen to, especially to uh, what we just heard, the, or we listen to the clip and it'll be on the website. You're not going to listen to that and fall in love with the sound. 
I don't think. You know, it's not a lyrical. Yeah, it's not lyrical. It, it does seem to draw on minimalism techniques, and yeah. there's some extended technique stuff, but uh, it's more about, I feel like, atmosphere than it is about line, you know? Which is probably why this word. works well yeah. with, uh, you know, the nudity, the blood, the gore. It's well, it is an atmospheric kind of, piece. It's kind of nice to see that kind of atmospheric music, that sort of like Radiohead-ish, in rainbows kind of soundscape things, mm-hmm. being paired with, like... What the, opera the is that? Images. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> <laughs> being paired with, like, uh, the, the kind of electric, the electricity of the projections that we have in the images. George, what... Do you like using projections in operas? Projections, man, they give me nightmares. That's something <laughs> I wouldn't touch with the 10-foot pole. Which is why you need someone like Chicago-based artist Sean Kowalty, who is a master of these things. <laughs> right. Shout out to that guy. Yeah. Whoa. The show's <laughs> Theater. It's finished at LA Opera. Keep an eye on it. See if it makes it to New York in the future. Talk about blood and mess and gore. It's all coming up next on TKO. TKO on the OBS. Well, it has been a while since we've done TKO. It's our segment where we take two opera singers and we put them in the ring and we let them fight it out over a single piece of music or even a single phrase or two, I think we've done. Mm. We've gotten that specific. Oliver Camacho is going to set this one up. So this is a listener suggestion. I totally forgot the guy's name. Zach. Zach. Zach Singerman. Zach uh, suggested that we uh, put two tenors in the ring. And Thank you. Two <laughs> tenors enter, one tenor leaves. <laughs> and we're going to tackle um, one of the most comprehensive tenor roles, lyric tenor roles, in the in the entire canon, which is the Duke of Mantua from Rigoletto. Yes. Also, uh, I'm just so glad we're doing a TKO, talking about singers, talking about tenors, and it's not a quiz where I'm going to feel like a complete dumbass <laughs> well, Toby, halfway through. I will tell Stop. you. Whatever you're about to say. <laughs> I did write my master's thesis on this opera and did this character. Really? Yes. <laughs> Crap. All right. That's okay. So the Duke uh, is a comprehensive role. He has two top 40 hit songs, uh, Questo Quella and La Donna Mobile, <laughs> and he has a complete aria, Shana, uh, in the style of a, of a 18th century romanza. Uh, and then he has this huge duet with soprano, which feels like an aria. And then the famous quartet, which also feels like an aria for the tenor, with duop singing in the background. Uh, this is middle period Verdi, uh, which is a bridge between the bel canto and the more romantic style of Verdi. So we hear a lot of the bel canto um, rhetoric. Uh, especially uh, ornamental singing and uh, accompaniment that feels very sparse and really just supports the phrase, which means that the singer has the real opportunity to create the phrase and to shape the phrase, as opposed to, let's say, Falstaff, where you don't have that much time. You just do what the conductor wants and no cadenzas, no interpolated high notes, etc., um, there are many singers who have excelled in this role because it really is so well written. Uh, a lot of uh, lyric tenors tackle this as their first foray into Verdi. But there is clearly one tenor who has dominated uh, in this role and has supplanted anybody who came before him, which is Luciano Pavarotti. And I, who's going for Luciano here? That is okay. me. Okay, so Toby is going to back up Luciano. And let's see who our challenger is going to be. Uh, Toby... Mathen? Mathen, who's going to be the challenger to Luciano Pavarotti? UC Beerling. Awesome. So uh, UC Beerling, choice. for his generation, was the Duke, and uh, maybe some will say that he still is. 
But uh, I have a feeling that Pavarotti is maybe considered to be the best in this role of all time. So we're going to handicap this. We're going to listen to a live recording of Pavarotti from 1981, where he would have been 46 years old, yes. about, you know, seven or eight years past his prime. And we'll listen to UC Burling in 1945, where he would be 31, uh, which puts him right in the prime of his career. These are both live performances. And uh, let's just start with some music, and then we'll talk a little bit. Uh, we're going to get to some a lot of tenor um, vocabulary we'll explain after this first clip. The first clip is the back half of the aria Questo Quella, uh, which is happens in the first few minutes of the opera. It's really um, introduction to the character. We learn right away that uh, the Duke is a cad. <laughs> First recording sounded like he was at a cocktail party. There was like all this background noise. I, I don't get that. Anyway, he was, a, he was at a party. No, I'm going to let. Uh... Go ahead. We're going to always have Burling first, just so everybody understands mm-hmm. what's going on. Uh, Matham, what do you got to say about that? Well, there's uh, the first thing that we need to talk about when we talk about recordings from different eras is that I, I know it's so hard, but we have to remove ourselves from our um, our sort of spoiled ears of modern recordings. Uh, it's it's very interesting when you talk about people like UC Burling, where recording engineers that he would work with in the day would even say, I wish we had better microphone technology because you, you cannot listen to a recording like this and understand what you are actually hearing in the house. It's just insane. Well, it's one of those deals, too, where, as so as a tenor, uh, I love listening to old recordings of other tenors, and that's where you get ideas of phrasing and of where they're breathing and what, you know, just so many different things it's like an athlete watching film those recordings are so tainted because they don't capture the actual sound it's true um but that being said they still exist oh yes and it's still this 
awesome portal that we have into history, and I love that. And it does what you lack in tonal architecture and 3D stereophonic space, you gain in this like visceral manhood mm-hmm. that you have, which is one of the things that I love about UC Bierling. He was Swedish. This recording was in 1945, but even through the hiss and pop and the background noise of the audience, you can hear the virility coming through. And even beyond that, there is a skill to what he does in his phrasing and especially accessing the top that I think Pavarotti himself would say he tried to emulate that. Tobias, do you have a counter-argument to that? Well, my counter-argument is that Pav not only does those things, but he has such a... He does those same things, but then he also adds onto it such a clear tone. And you know what? He was a little bit... What did we say? He was 46 in this recording. Mm-hmm. And some... So when I hear his top there, and you think of the beginning of this opera and this particular aria there needs to be a little bit of youth a little bit of brightness and even at 46 i think Pavarotti gives you that and that's why i think pav wins this round and it's not really even close what's your call i'll just say that there are two studio recordings uh pavarotti 71 with sutherland and bonning and 80 something with uh june anderson and leo nucci and uh i think it's schulte conducting oh no shai conducting that and the 71 recording is like unbeatable in terms of what poverty sounds like it's my favorite opera yeah. recording of all time yeah it's it's freaking amazing but i'm going to give that round to burling only because there's a carefreeness mm-hmm. in burling's attempt here and approach here and i think Pavarotti was still working out this is the beginning of the opera i'm just going to sing beautiful phrases and he wasn't as carefree that little as, laugh yeah exactly as, he as was relaxed as he was still, yeah. to us yeah. oh my god yeah. he doesn't yeah. <laughs> I mean, by the time Pavarotti got to that scale passage, he was finding it. But uh, but definitely Bierling felt like in the character right away. All right. Second round, uh, the uh, we're going to jump to the duet where uh, the Duke is trying to seduce Gilda. Uh, he pretends that he is a student named Gualtier Malde because he just overheard Gilda telling her nurse that she doesn't care who her suitor is. He could be poor. He could be a prince. It doesn't matter as long as he's sincere. So he's taking that information and running with it. And so he introduces himself and he sings this beautiful, uh, I don't know what you would call this line. It's like a seduction line. And we're going to talk about the passaggio after you hear this, but let's let's listen to this. And again, as with all the rounds, Bjerling is singing first. Yes. Thank you. 
Okay, so for me, this uh, section of the opera is where the Duke where the Duke has to really play the part of somebody who's not as disgusting as he is. He's putting on a character here, and he has to put on this elegance, which he knows, because he knows how to seduce all types of women. And I feel like Pavarotti here, I'm sorry to say, like really captures that elegance. And it has to do with his phrasing. It has to do with how he uses the the intake of breath. It has to do with his entire ascension up to that line and not yeah. sounding like he was afraid of it. And well, I, because yeah. him singing that so comfortably and, yeah. and with such elegance. Elegance, makes, that's it. Yeah, makes yeah. you as a listener and her yeah. as the woman kind of like feel comfortable and like, okay. Yeah, Burling <laughs> took breaths that indicated a little bit of desperation. I don't I'm not saying that Beerling was having problems technically, but it was not the right character for that moment. It was a little bit too sexual. And here the sexuality has to be kind of not explicit. It's like implicit, you know. We'll get explicit sexuality much later on. But Mathen I absolutely understand what you're saying. And one thing that is really highlighted by this clip of Pavarotti is his absolute command of the language. And you find that all through his Italian recordings, mm. all through his Verdi recordings. The phrasing that he mm. does, yeah. those little breaths, it's because he's living the poetry. And this is why I love Pavarotti. And so many people are like, oh, he was a crap musician. And I'm like, wait, 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 what? Did you listen? Did you listen? Because if you listen to something like that, don't tell me that that guy's not a fantastic musician and didn't understand the art form. Did he read music? I don't know. He didn't. <laughs> I mean, but that, but that to me doesn't. Just because you can sight read, just because you can read music really well, doesn't mean you're a great artist. And what a great artistic moment to hear him sing that. It's very difficult for me to argue against someone like Pavarotti, who is such a hero to me. Both of these men are titans of the work that they mm. do. But I will say, in this moment, Bjorling's attention to dynamics and his ease through the musical line still makes him a better bel canto artist. Well, I'm going to just say this really quick because George wants to go to the next clip, but um, there is something about navigating the passaggio, which to me has to do with a man figuring out a woman's sexuality, like a, uh, a, a tenor who knows how to finesse that area uh, does uh, excite, I think, like the in my brain, in my twisted brain, like the, the listener thinks that guy knows how to get through this tight space. Well, in, in navigating this, a weighty yeah. object through <laughs> yes. a tight space. Well, yes. <laughs> Innuendo aside, Verity yeah. felt the same thing, which is, and you look at the tenor roles, and yeah. Verity loved writing in the Passaggio because he really believed, and I think he was right. That was the most thrilling part of the. That's of where the it's exciting, voice. and like Verdi, yeah. Mozart, Puccini, yeah. all the geniuses. No. there's a chance it could all go to hell. Because <laughs> when you hear somebody f it up through the passage, exactly. like, ugh, I don't want to hear the rest of this. I, <laughs> I know where this reward. is going. But when it goes right, like it just did in that clip, yeah, it's, like, it's like you won't hear this on the recording of the of the show tonight. But we all giggled at the same yeah, time. Yeah. We were like, oh my god, that's so good. All right, let's go to round three. This is going to be uh, the romanza uh, in the act after in act two. After Jilda uh, is kidnapped and um, the Duke thinks that he may never see her again, he actually has this sincere moment where he misses her and he laments her and he thinks about her. Could she have been the one?
So there's a couple things, and this is why I think Pop wins this round again. <laughs> well, I I think he wins every round. That's why I chose him. But um, so we talked about his elegance in the last clip, in the previous clip. Um, and what he does here, there's a few things. One, it's a little more, I wouldn't say with reckless abandon, but he does some technical things that allow you as a listener to hear some vulnerability. One of them being, you hear a little H before some of his onsets. Jelly, whatever, you know, and what that is, it's a, it's a release of subglottal pressure. So there's a technical thing that happens there. Mm. And, Dang! <laughs> and so that's why when you hear a tenor, the tenor moan, so to yeah. speak, some people are like, oh, that's such a shtick thing it's not real no really there's a pedagogical reason and it allows you to take a big enough breath to support and then just slowly release the pressure and that's what makes tenors awesome and especially pop here so it sounds also when he does that it adds some dramatic intent to it as well as helps him sing the line just amazing to hear someone have such a masterful control of their voice of their instrument of their body to sing so stupidly beautiful math and uh, black it is it's stupidly beautiful and unfair. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a situation with this musical example, which does really show a difference between Pavarotti and, a, and uh, Burling. Pavarotti is a god walking among men who has superpowers. <laughs> it's like it's the it's the difference between Superman and Batman. Who do you value more? Do you want to watch Superman because he can't die, or do you want to watch a human being who fought and bled for this technique stand among gods and do the right thing? That's who Yusuf <laughs> Bierling is in this recording. So, when it comes down to it, uh, Pavarotti just has the Maserati voice tone, you know, the tone tone quality. And this is the bel canto moment for the tenor in the entire show. This is taken right out of a Donizetti opera, you know? And so because of that, because Pavarotti's specialty in bel canto repertoire and his ability to just give gorgeous tone and to create the phrases that he wants without any technical uh, obstruction, I have to hand it to Pavarotti on this one. Of so. course you do. Oh, my God. But it, it is, um, it's meaningful to note that in a situation like this, we're talking about tiny gradations of beauty in art. Both oh, of yeah. these yeah. men, the fact that they I would can take get Gerling through any this. Day, oh, yeah. any day. Oh, to, well, to any listener who's hearing these guys for the first time, if that's possible, you're hearing two of the greatest singers that we have on recording. And I mean, that's recording, if we think about it, only goes back 116, 120 years-ish now. Um, and these are two guys who are two of the most successfully recorded artists, period. And so we're listening, like you said, titans, and what a word uh, to describe these guys. And and it's interesting because they're influenced by the same people, too. Go ahead, George. So Bjerling won the first two rounds. No, we no. have... We're Bjerling one, Pavarotti two at this point. Oh, so. wow. Bjerling's yeah. behind. Yeah. So number but four. We're going to... Everybody knows this. It's La Donne Mobile. Let's listen for a good high B, and let's listen for a good scale, and let's listen for that kind of chauvinism of the first aria. Oh, <laughs> 
Barely wins this round. Yeah. He just does. This is the importance of live recordings, folks. Um, you can go into the studio and do it perfect. And you don't even have to do it mm-hmm. perfect in the studio. The engineer can make it perfect. But when you hear the uh, the arc of an entire performance, an entire evening, you have to understand that a tenor, any singer, has to pace themselves. And I actually heard a little bit of fry early in the clip of Havarati. And then the B was a little spread. And yeah, this is was, a... But that's what makes live recordings yeah. important. Yeah. And one of the things you said, spoiled ears earlier, Mathen, and I think, oh my gosh, studio recordings spoil us. Because then they create expectations of perfection. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, they don't allow for artistic freedom sometimes. So we end up, especially in this aria, in particular as a tenor, we hear the same ornamentations all the time and everyone then expects you to do them the same every time and in this it was a live recording of Pav he fudged some of the notes um, toward the end in the cadenza and frankly he was it was too open he didn't close his vowel on he the chose, he chose poorly yeah. in, in that situation yeah. but sometimes that's just a physical thing that yeah. might not even be a choice sometimes your body says I'm I'm not going to close that right now because it just doesn't feel right for me to do it. So it sounds a little open. But, but this hey. also makes YouTube such a powerful tool. Yeah, you can see, it's still awesome. You can because there is video attached to this. You can see Pavarotti thinking so hard, and he gets the B, and he's glad that he got it, but he knows that this is not the B that I wanted. <laughs> can we talk about where UC Bjorling starts the end of that last phrase two bars before, uh, blooms it, moves yeah. through, and goes on? Oh, I mean, my God. This, you were talking earlier about him being a warrior. I'm going to say he's a jock. Like, he is just an athlete, and he knows yeah. what his body can do, and it was so physically impressive what he just did there mm-hmm. all right are we gonna take a break we're we gonna go to the final round we can go to the final round so is it tied it is tied right now so this to me is the last big uh, uh melody for the duke in this opera and it is maybe the best melody of the entire show uh this is bella figlia dell'amore which is the famous uh quartet where uh the duke is seducing madalena who has been around the block a couple of times so he doesn't have to pretend he's a student with this one <laughs> he can be he I can think be it's funny that we call it a quartet yeah we only do it to hear the two <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um this is really talk, talking about passaggio this is uh a line that really just rides Passaggio so, so hard. And it starts off just by touching it, then going a little bit further, then going a little further, and until finally you're all the way in, and then you get a bloom on top. And there's so many sexual parallels to this. And this is exactly what Verdi wants. Madalena is very experienced. You can't, uh, you know, she needs a big one. You know? Truly, though, this is where you hear the genius of Verdi as a vocal writer. Il frequente, pal 
So, again, just a man in complete control in this moment. And it was so great. You hear him start below his passaggio. And if you, if anybody knows how to drive a manual transmission car, you know that you have to shift gears. That's and what I drive. Yeah! No, in what? England. In England. On the wrong side of the road. Um, somehow I'm trying to get a... Brexit joke in here, but I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, you just hear you hear Pav when he sings. It's like he shifts so flawlessly from below his passaggio, and the passaggio is a part of your voice for those listeners who may not be familiar. Where you go from, it's for a tenor. It's especially, I think, challenging sometimes um, for younger singers to grasp how to change from your chest voice into your high notes. That's just I'm not even going to get into it. We could have a whole 
show on it. But anyway, you hear Pop here, and the way that he shifts from below Passaggio into Passaggio and above, it's so flawless. You don't hear a It's break. a master class in how to sing. It is unbelievably yeah. beautiful Even in 1981, <laughs> when he was over the gutting over the hill. Not that he was that over the hill, but he was he getting really, there. So, I yeah. mean, it was just awesome to yeah. hear that. Yeah. Pavarotti wins this, hands down. For so many reasons, um, and it's it's funny we talk about the TKO of like actually beating another artist, but in this specific instance, the text painting, the elegance, the abandon—it's so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pavarotti's quoted for saying that when he wants to learn a new bel canto role, he starts not by looking at the score, but by listening to the UC Beerling recording and follows in his footsteps. Mm-hmm. Obi Wan Kenobi and <laughs> Luke Skywalker—the student has surpassed the master. Yeah, yeah. and but- that's one of the great things I think about hearing great singers is hearing who their influences are and it's i mean we have all that at our fingertips the youtubes the itunes these recordings that exist and thank god that they do because what i mean it's just such a glimpse into hearing a master i'm glad that we have the technology to to hear him you're never supposed to give up matt and uh i was gonna say because i was putting these clips together and i hadn't really had a chance to just sit and listen but i was gonna call this a draw i think Pavarotti, 1981 and Burling, 1945, if we take those singers at that age, Phenomenal. yeah, they're they're pretty equally matched. Maybe Pavarotti, 10 years younger, would have blown UC Burling out. You know? Who's the best Duke right now? Do I we mean, have one? I, I like... It comes close to this. I like the... I think it's the Muti um, with uh, Alanya. When Alanya was young, that was great. I don't think he's still singing anymore. He's not, yeah. he's not young anymore. Uh, yeah. Grigolo's awesome. Grigolo is... Grigolo is really fussy right now. Like, he is trying so hard to get the audience to like like him that he does so much stuff especially on stage he's trying so hard I think in a couple of years when he relaxes and just realizes we, you know, we're on your side you don't have to prove yourself we got you you know I know Stephen Costello is singing this now have either of you heard it I have not recently Stephen Costello has been sounding amazing so I like yeah. um, the yeah. Richard Tucker gala yeah ah! <laughs> Well, that I think is probably our first no decision in the TKO segment. That is to say, it was it, it was, was a tie. It was a draw. So. Yeah, I I think that Burling in the last clip there, Bellafidia, he just was so good at showing off and like really money shot. You know, it's like we were I was, we were laughing about, it, but it was really the porn money shot. You know, the so. arc of his crescendo is yeah. insane. Yeah. He starts so small and contained, and then blooms into this beautiful yeah. thing. But Pavarotti does that too, and then the text yeah. painting and the tiny decrescendos. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> thank you, Zach Singerman, for the suggestion yeah, for thank TKO. Yeah, you, Zach. That was a pleasure. If you have a suggestion for us for TKO, for Chalk Talk, let us know. OperaBoxScore at gmail.com is one of the many ways to get in touch with us. Giovanna Jacques sends us an oral postcard from the Teatro Massimo in Sicily coming up next, followed by the two-minute drill. Hi, George, Oliver, and Toby. This is Giovanna reporting from Palermo in Sicily. I am currently at the Teatro Massimo, which is a beautiful, beautiful theater here in Sicily. The auditorium seats about 1,380, which is, which is relatively small, but it is actually the second largest stage in Europe after the Opéra Garnier in Paris. Uh, the cheapest ticket is 20 euro, and the most expensive is about 100 euro. So the U.S. could uh, could learn to lower its prices a little bit over here. 
Um, the cool thing about this opera theater, this theater, is that the ceiling opens um, to have a sort of ventilation. It opens to an actual duomo, though not to the actual sky. We wouldn't want the elements ruining the frescas on the ceiling. There will be pictures and videos up on our website. I'm sending everything to George over in the U.S. So this is Giovanna reporting from Palermo, Sicily for Opera Box Score. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. Pierre Audi will leave Dutch National Opera in 2018 to become general director of the festival Dex en Provence. Audi has done 30 years in Holland, transforming it from a well-regarded Dutch hub into an international powerhouse. His last big project in Amsterdam will be the Stockhausen Licht Cycle. Will Humberg, 59, is the General Musik Director in Darmstadt. No more. He's told Darmstadt he's leaving in 2018, and one of his predecessors, Konstantin Trinks, did the same thing in 2012. The Fresno Grand Opera charged last week that former key employees were involved in financial irregularities, conflicts of interest, and improper corporate governance. The opera company has been led since December 2014 by a new board member and general director, Matthew Buckman, who said, quote, it was very disturbing to discover these issues upon my arrival to the company. Our goal here is only to establish trust and credibility in our community. There have been mutterings from singers about tighter security measures at Bayreuth ahead of an Islam-themed Parsifal, but no one has been seriously affected until this week. It appears that Klaus Florian Vogt, dressed in the role of Parsifal in a soldier's uniform, was stopped by security and taken out for questioning. It was later said that he failed to wear his identity badge, and the security guys failed to recognize Germany's second most popular tenor. Thanks to the creativity of a diverse group of UC Santa Cruz-affiliated professors, staff members, and their associates, Star Trek has been turned into a real opera. A free workshop performance presents the first act of the opera. Star Trek superfan should be pleased to know that the opera's director is John Delancey, who played the villainous and powerful Q, antagonist of Captain Jean-Luc Picard in The Next Generation. The annual survey of conductor salaries compiled by Drew McManus on Adaptistration website has been published for the year 2013-2014. At the Dallas Symphony, music director Jaap van Spieden was paid $5 million. That's double what Christoph Eschenbach got from the National Symphony the year before, and $2 million more than Lorne Mazel received in his final year as music director at the New York Philharmonic. That was the previous all-time high at $3.2 million. Following up on our Chalk Talk segment from last week, Turkish President Recep Erdogan announced on Saturday that he will press ahead with the development of the Taksim area of Istanbul, overruling furious protests by residents. In 2013, millions demonstrated against the Taksim plans to build a new opera house there, and 11 people died. That's the two-minute drill. gentlemen what's your quick take so we seem to be having this theme of talking about uh, opera companies in Germany and their challenges with you know having the reggae theater adventurousness and being afraid of terrorism or afraid of backlash and you had an interview with somebody I forgot but it was a really great interview in one of the Germany shows uh, like the Kirsten Harms yeah that was so I was like blown away by what she had to say and like the decision she had to make yeah. uh, to, to protect her audience and protect you know her her staff and and the artists um, so I'm not so much for 
uh, inciting, uh, you know, anger from certain communities that would put any artist in danger. It's not worth it. Yes, I understand there's a need to, like, be whatever, honest and be adventurous and, and you know, be avant-garde, et cetera, but not when people are going to be in danger. Um, it's not worth it. Um, if one person dies, then, like, you're done, you know? Like, that's, that's totally not worth it. But also, the other thing I would say about this on the, on the lighter side is, man, there's a huge gap between the most famous tenor, German tenor, and the second most famous tenor. <laughs> I had never heard of that guy before. I'm thinking, okay, Jonas Kaufmann and <laughs> Peter Schreier. Tobias, <laughs> right, what's your hot take? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. I always try to explain it. Somebody's like, when people ask me, are you going to be famous? And I'm like, one, no. But two, <laughs> even if I were, how famous really is the world's most famous, or are the world's most famous opera singers? Renee Fleming was on Oprah, everything's fine. Sure, okay. Yeah. So, two-minute drill, my response is to the, the Fresno Grand Opera and, and the discovery of financial irregularities amongst uh, people. I don't know if it was board members or whatever, but it got me thinking. I remember doing a young artist program. It was a pay-to-sing, and this is something we hear a lot as uh, younger singers, these pay-to-sing programs, and I always had my thoughts i did a european pay to sing one time and i just really felt like every penny i spent was somehow just being pocketed by the person in <laughs> control and i'm fairly confident that it was um and i just think you know we we talk about how we want so much for this art form to thrive and to survive and to grow and yet we have people whose interest who people who control the art form or have at least positions of powers within um opera companies who clearly just have their own best interests in mind and don't care the outcome of of the that's why you get, you got to put artists in administrative roles yeah. or retired artists you know mm. math and black we saved our guest for last conduct your salaries i love it I love people getting ridiculously wealthy off making really high-level art. I know there's a lot of controversy around that in the same way that it is in the sports world for people getting paid millions of dollars for playing football or playing soccer. Coaching football. Coaching any of those things. But I will say, if you take in a multi-million dollar salary as an artist, it is a sacred responsibility to give back. Just like if you pick up the check at a restaurant, it is a sacred responsibility to tip well. If you're going to take something that big, you better better damn well give back. Spoken like a true server, man. <laughs> Bartender. I will say, though, $5 million, that goes a long way in Dallas, probably. I'm not quite sure if that guy needs quite that much money. You know, when we talk about money and how much people make, I'm a poor person. Let me be really clear. Join the club. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I have debt from, from being an artist in school. But when we talk about sports salaries and music salaries where people make absurd amounts, I always think, you know what? If you generated enough money to support your salary... By all means, you deserve it. So LeBron James makes $20 million a year salary and then probably close to, and I'm not even exaggerating here, over $100 million from endorsements. You know what? He deserves every penny in my mind. Totally. And so, like, if you're making $5 mil to, or what did it say Lerma was making? 3.2 3.2? By all means. If you deserve that, if you if your company is thriving Whatever, he enough, was 90 when he died or something. Was he 90 or 80? He was, he was, yeah. he was fairly Agent. old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah. if you... If you can, if your company or whatever you're working for can support that, by all means, you deserve every stinking penny. The problem is, we then, as a culture, start building this idea of wanting to win the lottery with our salaries. Guys, everybody, artists, bankers, engineers yeah. alike, let's be responsible with our money. Mark Marin says there's only two types of people living in America: rich people.
people and people who are about to be rich. Now, let's not forget, though, that Lauren Mazel, in like the last decade of his career, really tried to give back with Castleton Festival, mm-hmm. and he was developing singers and developing conductors, Americans, you know. And uh, I hope that they continue. I think they shut down temporarily. I uh-huh, forget. After but, he passed. Yeah, but we hope that they persevere because I know a lot of people who really got a lot of that program. So. Giving back to the arts. <laughs> We're going to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call. It's coming up now. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. This weekend at Grand Park Music Festival, Angela Mead will be making her debut uh, singing in the Martineau Oratorio, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, I've never heard Angela Mead sing live. I've heard her sing on plenty of radio broadcasts, so I'm very excited for this. There's also Gideon Sachs as the uh, bass baritone role. And a local tenor from Northwestern, Dane Thomas, uh, singing up Dane. there on stage. I know, awesome, Dane. right? So, so go check that out. That's free at Grand Park Music Festival on Friday and Saturday. Tobias, right? My good call is finally having Oliver back in the studio after Aww. many weeks of him threatening to quit the show and burn <laughs> us all down in a fit of rage. <laughs> Math and ring black. Now that it is summer in Chicago, that means the Ravinia Summer Music Festival. So much great stuff going on there in terms of classical music as well as pop music and cool artists hanging around. Specifically, end of July, Mahler 2, conducted by James Levine. You mean Buy James, your tickets James, right now. James, James, James Levin. Levine. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, also, also at Ravinia this year, Polansani and Daniel Denise both give recitals and they both give master classes with the Ravinia Young Arts program. And Matthew Mati- Polansani, who's been on Opera Box score before. Yes, and, and Matthias Gurner singing some leader. He's so, so good! Yes. That's it for our podcast this week. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. For WNUR, our programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can always email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archive episodes, learn more about our team, and listen to our brand new demo reel. You can also subscribe to our podcast version of the show, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. You know the drill. Don't just listen to the podcast. Leave a comment or a review. Now, look, we're taking Independence Day off next week, but we're back live on WNUR on Monday, July 11 at 9 p.m. Central. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Giovanna Jacques, and Mathen Black, and George Cedarquist, asking you to stay up late on these summer nights and continue the conversation about opera. We'll see you next time.